This week on New Mexico in Focus, wildfire season in August as fires burn later, hotter, and bigger. When I started a fire that was, you know, over like say five, 6,000 acres was a pretty big fire. Plus, the governor relaxes restrictions for restaurants. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. We have a lot to get to this week as political parties wrap their conventions and campaigns ready for the final stretch. We'll talk about how convention themes influence local campaigns. We'll also talk to a New Mexican who's created a tool to track post office collection boxes to see what's being removed and what gets returned. We track the latest changes in the governor's health order, the Supreme Court's decision on whether she's been treating restaurants equally, and how all the closures and job losses may portend a coming tide of evictions. We begin with the line. Happy Friday. It is August 28th, 2020, and this is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We appreciate you tuning in and downloading and subscribing. We thank you for your support, whether it's here in the podcast, on air, online, you name it. And we love to hear from you, and we'd love to get your involvement and engagement in the show jam-packed show this week for sure. A lot of extras for you here on the podcast that we're excited to bring to you. And we want to kick things off with our line opinion panel. This week we have Laura Sanchez. Uh, she's a regular on the line. We also have Lana Atkinson, great friend of the show. We love having her on, especially this week. She is a professor in the UNM Political Science Department and Dan Boyd, the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Albuquerque Journal. So a great group, especially for this first topic this week, which is all about campaign season, which is now in full effect with the Republican National Convention wrapping up on Thursday evening. The prior week was the Democrats getting together for their national convention. And of course, all of this in unprecedented times. Most of the conventions, part of the conventions held virtually because of COVID-19, which of course is also affecting how candidates nationally and locally are able to get their messages heard and get in front of constituents door to door. It's a pretty taboo thing right now. And so candidates are looking for new ways to connect with potential voters. And uh, so we wanted to get some thoughts and opinions on the conventions and how they did on that front and how some of the local races are shaping up. And so here now, Gene Grant and the line panel. Democrats and now Republicans have flipped the off switch on their virtual conventions and the presidential campaigns will roar into September. So, too, do New Mexico's high-profile federal races. That's where our line opinion panel steps in with some analysis. Here on the screen is line regular and attorney Laura Sanchez. We also have Dan Boyd with us. He's the Albuquerque Journal's Capitol Bureau Chief. And great to see you in political science professor Lana Atkinson again. And Lana, you're following the presidential race, of course, but you're also curious about how the themes of those conventions informs campaigns here. 
Tell me about that. What's your, what's your sense of what you thought the big themes were? Well, you know, we've really, you know, seen two very different uh, conventions and uh, two very different views. And we can see those in our candidates and how they're talking about uh, the different issues, uh, either coronavirus or, um, you know, law and order, of course, is a big issue for the Republicans and their convention is going on now. Mm -hmm. Dan, interestingly, when you think about it, you know, we all had to get used to a, a bit of a uh, a new look, so to speak, for conventions. We're so used to balloons and cheering people and all that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I just, I, do any of the candidates for Senate for, for, or U.S. House here are picking up on this theme that Laura's talking, uh, uh, sorry, Laura, that Lana is talking about? Are you seeing the same things being playing out here in New Mexico at this point? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've kind of adapted to a lot of these campaigning, you know, remote campaigns, virtual campaigns. Mm -hmm. uh, it certainly makes it more difficult, you know, to connect with voters, I think. Um, but I, I think, like Lana said, you know, we've really seen a difference in tone, the two conventions. Uh, interestingly, both of them have had a pretty heavy New Mexico kind of um, hmm. component to them, both the, the Democrats with the, the governor and um, Congresswoman Deborah Holland, uh, both in prime time. The Republicans have had a few speakers as well, an Albuquerque police officer mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the widower of, of a woman who was killed last year in a high profile crime. So we've kind of from coming from different perspectives, but it's, uh, you know, a heavy dose of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Laura sanchez Reve, I'm, I'm curious, you've been around this game a long time, and I'm, I'm just curious, is the coattails for down-ballot folks, is that still a thing? Is that going to be a thing in this presidential race as well? Um, I think it's always a thing in presidential years, and, okay. and yeah, I think there's going to be some of that, but what's interesting about New Mexico is, you know, we always sort of see ourselves as a bellwether of sorts, and I think that more recently we've been trending um, Democrat, and so the Republicans, though, are not giving up, and I don't think that uh, Democrats are um, looking to kind of, um, you know, lose any ground. And so both sides are really going to be at it at the local level as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So while there will be coattails, um, certainly for the federal races that are going on, um, there's also, I think, a, a reasonable expectation of a surge from the local level, because you're going to see in some of these local races, well, certainly the federal ones, but even in some of the more competitive um, House and Senate races, where people will, will do what they can to get their little um, you know, solid voters to the polls. And that's going to result in some uh, uptick for even the, the, the higher ones, the uh, presidential ones. Um, you know, most people probably, well, I think the, the, I think most people think that they've made up their minds, but the Republicans are certainly trying to do what they can to get, um, you know, more people to be peeled off from the Democrat than vice versa. So I think we're still going to see a lot of, you know, we're still, traditionally, this stuff isn't supposed to get started till after Labor Day. Um, so we'll see what they pull out of their uh, out of their sleeve, right? That's right, exactly right. Lana, I'm curious if anything if any of this is playing out to your eye in newspaper, radio ads, TV ads. Are you seeing some of these themes playing out in in paid advertising so far? Oh, absolutely, especially especially in the Senate race, especially with Ronchetti. He's uh, clearly talking about sort of national themes and the culture war. Uh, I think his, his ad starts something like what faith, family and freedom. Um, so those are those are very much trying to tap into to these bigger cultural issues that we're discussing as a nation. Mm -hmm. Dan, interesting on the same theme, CD2, uh, I've seen, we've all seen, I can't avoid them, the commercials for Social Torres Small. She might as well have dipped herself in a red tank. I mean, she is mm -hmm. really leaning into it. It's incredible. 
I, and we all get it with the district she's in, but again, the themes that are playing out through paid advertising, would she be an example of what, you're, what we're talking about here? Yeah, certainly. I, I think she came out with an ad uh, again this week about her, you know, with Shotgun and Yvette Harrell, her Republican opponent also had a shooting ad. So right. you can kind of see the, uh, the demographic both of them are, are targeting. Um, you know, it does seem like there's a lot of similarities in that race as two years ago. So it'll be interesting to see over the next, uh, you know, two and a half months, outside groups, outside spending. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be one, you know, to uh, that a lot of outside money is going to be coming to the state and it'll probably be really close again. But kind of the Trump impact, um, as was mentioned before, I think will be big in that, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and clearly kind of a, a referendum on Trump and in that district, which has been, you know, historically conservative. I appreciate you saying that. We should put a pin in that idea of money coming in from out of state. That's going to happen. You're exactly right. Not a lot of folks have talked about that yet, but you're, you're exactly right. Laura Sanchez, speaking about money, are you seeing a serious run by Republicans when it comes to CD1, when it comes to raising money? Are, are you seeing this happen? Are we going to have a competitive race here? I can't see a, a more money being spent in CD1 than they will do in CD2. Okay. CD2 is really the one that's in play for them. Um, you know, and it's same with CD3. They're not going to they're just not going to gain any ground, I don't think, by putting a lot of money into CD3 or CD1 when CD2 is the ballgame for them. Um, you know, that's a district that's flip-flopped several times over the last 10 years. Um, we saw Harry, and, and I think that part of the election, in addition to money, is surrogates. So those surrogates start to be, mean more at the local level. So, you know, so-and-so is endorsing them or, or, or so-and-so is opposing this person. Therefore, I will make a decision because I like what they stand for. So, for example, Harry Teague, who held that district um, before Steve Pierce picked it back up, um, has endorsed Yvette Harrell. But then you have, interestingly enough, um, uh, the, the head of Namoga, Ryan Flynn, who's the executive director of the New Mexico um, Oil and Gas Association, who came out with a letter supporting um, Torres Small in that race. And then he got criticized by some of the folks that were backing Harry Teague for having done that and were calling <laughs> for his resignation. So it, wow. it became this whole oil and gas thing. Um, and then of course you've seen, we've, we, some of you may have seen the ad with the local sheriff who um, is saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat, but I'm supporting Yvette Harrell and not Sochi Torres Small. So it's very interesting. We're, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that as we go forward. Um, we'll see some of that also in the other districts, but we're really going to see most of the noise in the Senate district and in CD2. Gotcha. Lana, would you go ahead? Mm -hmm. Also shows how there's, you know, that we're like this microcosm of what's going on nationally. There's so much movement going on in the parties. People are, you know, maybe people are thinking about crossing over and change. There's really so much going on under the hood and that's being exemplified in, in, in what's going on in this race that is receiving national attention. This may be the most competitive race in the country. I'm gonna stay with you on that. Let's talk about that. I wanna talk about some presidential stuff too. Um, obviously the president of the United States made a lot of noise uh, last year and earlier this year about winning New Mexico. Um, are you seeing the effort at this point? You know, I mean, certainly we've seen some ads, mm -hmm. um, but we, you know, it's hard to tell because there's no, you know, with no traditional kinds of activities going on for candidates, it's mm -hmm. really not hard to know what's happening. And, you know, where's the enthusiasm? It's hard to tell if there's enthusiasm or if there's hatred or it's just, <laughs> it's just impossible to know. Yeah. Uh, very, very challenging time to be a pundit. That's a good well, point. If I could ahead, jump in real quick, um, Gene, I, I do think that 
you know, it's, we're in such an interesting um, period right now, not just with COVID, but I think politically everything that's happened in the last uh, year or so, and, and really in the last since, since Trump was elected last time, we've had a surge of women uh, running for office, women being more active politically. We've had, I think that the women's vote is going to be such a huge component of this election in New Mexico. And to what Lana mentioned of New Mexico being a microcosm of the rest of the country, it'll be interesting to see how things play out here because we, for the first time, have every CD district, uh, we're going to guarantee to have a woman, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, there'll be a woman holding each of those congressional districts. So, um, you know, when women run, women vote, right? Women vote and then women win. And so you're going to see more women go into the polls. And I think it's a question of, you know, will they be turned off by Trump, even if they're Republican, maybe they're or independent, maybe they're more moderate, or they're not interested in the kind of leadership that he has shown to now. I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the presidential. And it's a very, there's polarization going on in the state as well. I mean, that's really interesting to bring up because the parties themselves are very gendered, both at a national level and in New Mexico. You know, there are many more women who are committed to the Democratic Party, and there are more men committed to the Republican Party. The gender gap has never been bigger. What does that mean, with the gender gap getting this big, Lana, and in, in, in bigger beyond for candidates? How do they have to respond to this? You, you clearly can't ignore it. You know, I, I mean, I, I think it's very challenging in the sense that we, we sort of are, are, are genderizing our parties. You know, where yeah. we you know, obviously have Ed Harrell and we've had Republican uh, women running as well in, in, in all of these races. Uh, but if we think of it more at a bigger level, you know, the, the, the real surge in female candidate activity is coming from the Democratic side. And there's still a dearth of, of, of female players in the Republican Party. Mm, this should be interesting. By the way, folks, I want to let you know that Professor Atkinson uh, at the Department of Pol Political Science at the University of New Mexico. She is the director of the Center for the Study of Voting, Elections, and Democracy there. She's also the executive director for the Institute for Social Research at the University of New Mexico. Now, we have to leave it there for now. One of the election issues we have been and will be following is the U.S. Postal Service. President Trump's postmaster general has pulled mail sorting machines and mailboxes from communities across the country ahead of what's expected to be the largest mail-in turnout in U.S. history. Now an Albuquerque-based software designer has teamed up with an online mapping community to keep a close eye on what mailboxes may have been removed through a new community source web application. NMIF correspondent Megan Kamrick talked to Russ Biggs about his work. Started a conversation last week on the show about the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, it's been in the headlines a lot lately in terms of its ability to handle what will be an influx of absentee votes going through the mail during the election season, and also President Trump and his administration, uh, particularly Postmaster General, who had started to um, dismantle some of the infrastructure of the Postal Service um, because of budget concerns and other things. That has now apparently stopped, but all of that sparked a local web developer here in Albuquerque, to uh, come up with an, a pretty innovative approach uh, to help not only with the elections, but just in general for people to know about changes within postal service operations and delivery here in New Mexico. Uh, the idea is very simple. It's crowdsourcing. There is a web app where you can go on and you can find uh, the postal boxes and where they are supposed to be as of a census of them a couple years ago. And then people can 
sign up and get in there and get the information to say, yes, this postal box is here or it's no longer here or it's locked. We don't know if that's a temporary security thing or a permanent thing. So we wanted to talk to this uh, web developer, Russ Biggs, about why he started this and why uh, this is so important to him. Plus a lot of information about how you can get involved if you want to help them spot the box. That's the name of the web app, Spot the Box. Here now, correspondent Megan Kamrick and Russ Biggs. Russ, thanks for talking with us today. You helped develop a new application that is meant to help folks find USPS collection boxes around the country. Can you explain how you came up with this idea and how you want people to use it? Sure. Um, so last weekend, um, I didn't actually come up with the original concepts, but um, I'm part of um, a community called OpenStreetMap, which is an open source, sort of like a Wikipedia for maps. Um, so in one of the Slack channels for that, um, someone named Mikkel Marin, who's the community manager at a company called Mapbox, who's done a lot of this kind of work, um, started thinking about post office boxes um, and some of the news about them disappearing. So he kind of reached out um, and by Saturday morning, he last Saturday morning, he and I started um, developing this application. So we had a really simple idea, which was we had um, full data set of all 205,000 USPS collection boxes that was acquired through a Freedom of Information Act request last year uh, by someone named uh, Nathan Story out in Boston. So we had this data set and then it seemed like a pretty straightforward process to say, okay, maybe we can um, take this set and then allow users to just say, is the collection box there or is it not? That was kind of the original concept, a very simple, is the box still there or has it been removed? Um, there definitely is a time gap within that. So, um, but with the current reports, one thing we kind of had a question about was, um, okay, we're hearing reports that post office boxes are uh, being removed, but how many and where and which ones exactly? So that was kind of the principle. So. Um, throughout the last weekend, we developed um, Saturday, Sunday, and then finally on Monday, we launched uh, spotthebox.us. It's spot-the-box.us. So it's a web application, um, pretty simple. You just open it up, it'll find out where you are, and then you can see all the post office boxes around you. Click the box um, that's, that you have just walked up to and confirmed that it's there or not. And then it'll take you to a simple screen where you say it's here or it's been removed. Um, so that launched last Monday evening, um, and so far we've got about 700 um, po posts that people have like con confirmed or denied whether or not a, a box is there. So our goal is just to get as much crowdsourcing of this information. Um, that way we can kind of distribute that work. Um, if you pass by a collection box, you can simply use this, and then you'll kind of you'll be able to know. Now it's a web. It's a web-based app. So is it also going to be an app for? Uh, phones, but right now you use it on your phone and you'd open like a web browser to use it, correct? Yeah, it now, right? will, okay. it'll um, probably remain a web application. Um, there's a lot of extra work that goes into building the native stuff and then deploying it um, in the stores. So a web application worked really well for us because we were able to get it done in a weekend. Um, a native application would take a little more time, but there's plenty okay. of functionality on the web now on smartphones. So it's a pretty great platform to get that done. So it's also, it's a matter of like, you want people to confirm the boxes are there, but you also want them to say, hey, this box is missing. So it's both. 
so you're keeping an up-to-date database. Yes. Okay. Um, actually, mid last week, we added another option, which was um, there's some reports and it's kind of fuzzy on what it means, but a box is being locked. Um, oh. There's different stories about that's pretty standard practice in some uh, areas for um, when the post office is closed to prevent tampering. Um, mm. But there's kind of been different stories going on about that. Um, so we have a locked slash uh, unusable or out of order um, because it is kind of that in-between category. I know that you just launched this uh, more than a week ago. So the data might not be a robust or significant as of right now, but what are you seeing so far? Are you seeing any trends or problems? Um, there's, I, I don't know the numbers. I didn't check exactly how many we have that have been removed so far. There's not a lot uh, that have been removed, that have been reported removed at this point. Um, one set that was kind of interesting, I'd heard a lot of reports around Eugene, Oregon of a lot of boxes being removed. Um, someone's been doing a lot of work up there the last, I think over this last weekend, um, and a lot are being marked as present. Um, so yeah, as the data kind of hopefully continues to flow in, we'll see more um, bigger trends of what's what's happening. A lot of this is really happening, a lot of the surveys only happening really in urban areas. So mm. rural areas aren't being surveyed through the app. Um, this is kind of a common problem when you crowdsource data. Um, it's definitely gonna come from more urban areas. Um, so that, that, mm. those are the general trends we're seeing right now. The Postmaster General has said that he will stop dismantling mail sorting machines and removing mail collection boxes until after the general election in November. But there was no mention of reversing the damage that had already been done in states like New Mexico. What are you hoping to get out of the data with these things in mind? Um, kind of regardless of what the Postmaster General is saying, I think there's still sensors, these reports of them already being removed. Um, our goal is definitely to find uh, where and how many exactly, because um, at least in the reports I've seen, there's not a really good indication of exactly where or how many have been removed. So um, we since actually since we have kind of an older data set from 2019, um, th there will there will have been possibly some removal that happened from uh, September of 2019 and up until this latest news of more being removed. But we we can kind of get a sense of which ones might have been removed. And then if they are replaced, um, we are working on a feature to have multiple survey passes so that we can kind of get a time series of and, and correct information as well. So that's kind of the bigger goal. Um, it's hard to know, you know, at, at the level we have 700, um, doesn't quite tell the story. Um, we haven't set a mark that we'd like to hit, but definitely, you know, as many of the boxes as possible is our goal. The post office is calling it a false narrative that Louis DeJoy is trying to influence this election. Does the reason matter or does the impact of pulling a collection box or sorting machine the same, regardless of why? I mean, I would say it, it, it does matter. Um, kind of the, the election is an is a added impact to that. Um, this project, I think, had some of that context in mind, but it's not necessarily just around the election and that. I think some of it's about um, if there are these reports of post office boxes being removed, that affects general life for folks as well. Um, outside of the election, the election would be a, a huge piece, especially with the large mail-in um, action happening. So um, we're kind of keeping it, I think, somewhat neutral around that. Um, mm -hmm. We're not going to see what, what the data can tell us, both for the election and just general uh, usage of the postal service. 
As you mentioned, you worked on the initial build of the application with another person, Mikkel Marin, but now you're collaborating openly with others on the internet. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, so um, like I said, this all started uh, in the OpenStreetMap uh, community. So um, we started a chat and there was a lot of discussion back and forth. Um, once I got the prototype built, um, I was able to, I put it up on GitHub. So all the source code's available on GitHub. Hmm. It's um, open source licensed under an MIT license, which generally it's a pretty simple license that anyone can kind of do roughly anything with the code should they wish. Um, we've had about, I think six contributors contribute code. And then there's lots of discussion happening. Um, the name of the box was named by somebody else. Some of the colors of how to pick some of these pieces have been picked by other people. Um, there's some people just helping kind of organize because oh, having a project open like this takes a lot of organization. Um, I'm definitely kind of the main, the maintainer and the main contributor right now. Um, but it can kind of be a full-time job of kind of managing questions, comments, uh, feature requests. So it's been great to have a lot of help. Um, and every day more people are looking at the repo and starting to join in the discussion. And what does the future look like for this? You mentioned that a second project might be in the works to visualize and share the data collected. Yeah, we haven't talked about that too much, but um, I think there would be um, a good follow-up, which is after we've collected all this information, kind of look at how it was collected, when it was collected, and eventually if we can get this new feature to show um, multiple passes on a box. Um, so if it someone reports it removed, um, someone then reports it uh, present, um, any sort of crowdsourcing, there's some data control that you have to do within that because there is, um, you know, uh, kind of call it like graffiti or, you know, vandalism that can happen with the data. So we can kind of help tease that out um, and then um, just present the data instead of it being a data collection tool. Um, another big feature we want is um, photo documentation. So we're working on that so that you can access your camera phone and take a photo of a removed box or of the box. And that will help, I think, improve the data quality. So something to also browse all of that because all of a sudden you get a lot of information and you might be able to want different ways to slice and dice it. So we haven't talked too much about that follow-up, but I think that is going to be an essential piece of after we collect all this data, what do you do with it? And um, we want it to be open and available. Great. This is really interesting. Russ would love to hear how this uh, evolves as you guys build it out. Yeah, thank you for uh, chatting with me about it. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Been an unusual fire season in New Mexico, but things are starting to heat up literally as they are throughout the West. Fires burning just about every state in the Western region. And we have our own going up in the Santa Fe National Forest, the Medio Fire. Uh, and we wanted to get an update on the firefighting efforts there, as well as talk about the fire season, which would be normally winding down about now. And we didn't have many serious wildfires early in the normal uh, fire season, but it's picking up as temperatures continue to hover around 100 degrees on a regular basis, and all that fuel is just drying up. So correspondent Laura Paskus caught up with a couple of fire officials this week to get an update on what's going on and how firefighting is sort of changing along with climate change. And so we were thrilled to be joined by Buck Wickham with the Forest Service and Terrence Gallegos. You might remember him from a recent Ardland episode. He is a firefighter as well in the Santa Fe National Forest. 
who had actually gone to Australia to fight the serious wildfires there back, seems like forever ago, but back towards the beginning of the year. And so here now is that conversation with Laura and Terrence Gallegos and Buck Wickham. The lightning-caused Medio fire is burning through 3,000 acres of forest above Santa Fe, sending smoke across northern and central New Mexico. At the same time, firefighters are battling blazes across the west, including Colorado and California. This week, correspondent Laura Pascas talks with Incident Management Team Chief Buck Wickham about what's happening with the Medio fire and checks in with the Santa Fe National Forest's Terrence Gallegos about why this is an unusual fire season for New Mexico. Terrence, it almost seemed like we were going to catch a break this fire season. But what happened? I feel like August isn't our normal fire season. Yeah, no, that's a, a really good observation, and that, that's correct. Uh, you know, this year was just a kind of a, a freaky year for the monsoons. In fact, it, I think it got dubbed the non-soons because we didn't, you know, we just didn't get the moisture that we're used to getting this time of year. Uh, typically, we don't have to worry about large fire on the Santa Fe National Forest this time of year. In fact, uh, we're looking for opportunities to start beginning our prescribed fire opportunities, uh, maybe manage a wildfire for some resource objectives because we're in the fields conditions and weather conditions that we can do that. But uh, just the lack of moisture that we got during the, the monsoon season put us right back into fire season. So it, we're getting uh, some fire indices and ERCs that are, that are pretty dang close to what we would see in June, which is the peak of our fire season here. So oddball year. I know that you often don't have the luxury of just focusing on what's happening right now, but you have to be looking ahead as well. And I'm curious what you're thinking might be able to happen this winter in terms of um, prescribed fire, planned burns and things like that, especially with the challenges that COVID and the seasonal flu could potentially present this winter. Yeah, we've been uh, we've been discussing that quite a bit, and you know, we we do have to uh, go about that very diligently and make sure that we're communicating well with the public and looking at the smoke receptors and 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 the sensitive smoke receptors that we could potentially impact. So we we are we've been talking about that for about a couple months now, and and working with leadership and uh, just trying to figure out what prescribed fire opportunities there may be out there with the least amount of impacts when it comes to smoke. Um, the, the Medio fire has created a lot of smoke for the, for the city of Santa Fe. They've been uh, dealing with a lot of smoke from this wildfire. And so that's definitely a consideration. We don't, we don't want to compound that uh, later on down the road if, if, if we can help it. So. And speaking of prescribed fires, it seems like prescribed fire and maybe some past burns have helped slow the Medio fire. Is that the case? Yeah, yeah. There was a prescribed fire that was done by the Española Ranger District in Pacheco Canyon. It was about 500 acres. It was done last year around May, and it was a little wetter year. Um, in fact, I have a picture of it, and there's still snow on the on the mountaintops there. Um, but yeah, it 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 really came into uh, be a, a key part of slowing down the progression of the fire. When the, when the Medio fire kind of ran the Rio and Medio drainage, you know, fire likes to run uphill. 
And so it was in a drainage bottom and pushed uphill with a little wind behind it. And it actually kind of ran right into that prescribed fire that we did a year ago and it knocked it down. And in fact, there, there were some spot fires inside the prescribed fire, but they were very easily handled because there wasn't the amount of fuel in there from the burn. And in fact, the hand line from the prescribed fire was also utilized to pick up the main edge of the fire. So it was, uh, it was really um, awesome that, that that prescribed fire played such a critical role in, in keeping the fire from progressing across the 102 because if the, if the fire would have crossed the Pacheco Canyon Road, what we call Forest Service Road 102, it would have gotten into what we call the Gabaldon Roadless area. And that's uh, an area that's got a lot of terrain, uh, thick fuels, and it's uh, really close to a lot of values at risk. You know, the Tesuke watershed is in there, the Santa Fe Ski Basin, um, Hyde State Park, the Forest Service has uh, a lot of campgrounds along this uh, ski highway that would have been impacted. And then of course the upper watershed for the, for the Santa Fe is is in a kind of direct impact if something gets going in that area. So it was uh, it was really great to see that hard work uh, be paid off like that with a wildfire interacting with it. Well, thanks for your time, Terrence, and thanks for everyone's hard work on the fires. Thank you. Buck, the Medio fire started on August 17th, if I'm right, and it's burning up above Nambe Reservoir in the Santa Fe National Forest. How did the fire start, and what has its behavior been like this past well, week? Well, we haven't made a determination of how the fire actually started yet. Uh, the, uh, there has been an investigation up there, but I haven't heard what uh, if there was a determination made what had actually started the fire. And what... It is it um, high severity, low severity, kind of what's happening up there? I know it's probably different from day to day, but how would you characterize its, uh, its severity these, this past well, week? Well, uh, we've got uh, several crews up there. We initially, we tried to stop the fire at Rio Nambo, uh, Nambi, and, uh, and then uh, Rio and Medio on the southern part of it. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's really been difficult is we've been hit by winds from every direction of the compass because of the thunder cells around our fire that give us a lot of wind but haven't given us much rain at all. But uh, the fire the first day ran across the medio drainage and made it about to, as far as Aspen Ranch. And uh, then we had to back off and try again. But we've got it uh, two different areas. We didn't want it to go north over the Rio Nambi and we didn't want it to go south across that 102 road. And so that's been pretty much what our focus has been on the fire. And we've divided it up into two different groups of folks working out there, and one coming from the north and one from the south, and they're doing pretty well. And how has COVID changed how you all are fighting fires and working together? Well, uh, anytime that we, we have four rules that we go by. One of them is the concept of a module of one. And so if you're on an engine crew, you're a module of one. It, there might be three to five people on an engine crew, but they work together, they eat together, they stay together, and they don't mingle with other people. And anytime they're forced to do that, then we have to wear masks. And that's one of the things like, you know, we wear masks 
all the time from, you know, the first briefing until we go to bed every night. And so that's another thing that we're trying to do is make sure people are wearing masks and then social distancing, trying to not uh, get any bottlenecks of people, you know, and, uh, you know, for instance, we don't eat in a chow hall anymore. We get our individual meals and go hide somewhere and eat by ourselves, you know, and so the social uh, distancing is in, taken into consideration then. And then washing our hands, you know, we've all heard uh, the drill since we were kids, go wash your hands. And we've got hand washing stations and uh, sanitizers everywhere. And we try to get everybody to wash your hands until you're sick of washing your hands. So you've been fighting fires for decades. What do you notice that's different about today's fires than maybe they were 20 or 30 years ago? Oh, there are so many things different. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I'll say is different that's really critical is the fuel bed that we're fighting fires in. You know, I have been fighting fires for several decades, and, uh, you know, fires are getting a lot larger now than they were. In, uh, and, you know, and for several different causes, maybe not necessarily all fuels, but fires do burn with an incredible intensity uh, in the fuel bed that people are fighting fires now compared to when I started. When I started a fire that was, you know, over like say five, 6,000 acres was a pretty big fire. And now, you know, these fires exceed that uh, tremendously. You know, there's fires burning in California over 100,000 acres, you know. And I do think that, and I think that uh, different ways of managing fires have caused a lot of the acres and, you know, to get bigger on fires. It's a lot easier world to fight fires in now than it was when I started. We had a lot less to deal with, you know. Well, thank you for joining us, Buck. Um, we appreciate your time and hope you all stay safe out there. Okay. All right. There's just never enough time to get in everything we want to in our hour-long broadcast, but this podcast is a perfect opportunity to share some extra material. And right now it is on the wildfire front. I'm going to show you or play for you now some extra sound we got with Buck Wickham, uh, basically talking about how we as citizens of New Mexico can help the firefighters um, in any given fire season and even when fire season is not happening, what their needs are and what more we can do to support them. After that, Laura spent a few extra minutes with Terrence Gallegos and uh, she had reached out on Twitter asking if people have questions about the Medeo fire or the wildfire season in general. And we got a lot of good suggestions there. So Terrence, thankfully and appreciatively, we thank him for his time. He took a few extra minutes to answer some of those questions, uh, things around the kinds of uh, wild or plant life that is burning in some of these fires and how that can affect the severity of a fire. Also things like beetle infestations and, and other uh, environmental changes that make wildfires um, us more susceptible to them. So a lot of great information here. We appreciate his time and all of the firefighters' efforts. Uh, not fun to be out there in these 100-degree temperatures trying to battle the fire. We are very grateful for all their efforts. But here now, a little extra material on wildfires in New Mexico. So what do communities need to be prepared for? Um, right now, while the fire is burning and the smoke is billowing, but also once the, once the fires are out, what do people need to be prepared for and paying attention to? 
You know, one of the worst things in a fire is after the fire is out when it rains, because if a fire burns real hot, the outflow or the, just the water that runs out of a fire is very damaging. And uh, I tell you, there's some really horrible examples real close to Santa Fe too, after the Los Conscious fire, you know, there was some horrendous flooding that came out of that fire. And that's the, you know, the key reason why we're trying to keep that uh, real intense fire uh, and that behavior down and all of our burning, we need to blacken the land, but we want to do it with a moderate intensity, you know, to leave the canopy and the, of the trees there and prevent that uh, flooding that happens after a fire. So communities like to appreciate firefighters um, when y'all are battling a big fire like this, um, put out roadside signs and you know, I think people like to try to drop off food and that sort of thing. What sort of support do firefighters um, really need from communities when a big fire like this is happening and then also during other times of the year? Well, you know uh, what firefighters need from the community, uh, you know, it's always, uh, it always makes you feel better, you know, because it, you know, we do work long hours and those guys out there on the fire, when, you know, might wake them up when they're driving in there in the morning and see a thank you sign. And that's all very well appreciated. As far as other things, you know, bringing stuff like we've had offers of uh, water and cookies and, you know, about everything you could ask for. And, Quite frankly, we try to take care of our own, and it may be uh, due to the COVID crisis, rather than bringing over something and leaving it, maybe it would be better just to put up a sign of appreciation, but those guys really like that, you know, and it is a, a very well received by the firefighters. All right, thank you, Buck. You bet. Terrence, we solicited some questions from our followers on Instagram, um, asking people what they would like to better understand about wildfire in New Mexico. And one of the questions comes from Chris Nordstrom and he asked, is there a way to detect fires faster so they can be dealt with more quickly? And I was wondering what you had to say about that. So, you know, the traditional detection mode for, for most national forests is uh, what we call the a lookout, a fire lookout. And so we staff these towers that are um, high up on mountain peaks that have great views of the forest. And, and then those folks are trained with a, with a firefinder to kind of zero in on, on where they uh, identify the smoke. And of course they call dispatch and then dispatch calls uh, the units to respond. Um, there, there is some technology out there right now with the uh, IR kind of satellite infrared capabilities and we are able to tap into that. Um, it's not always the most reliable. You kind of get these big, you know, square pigments over, over an area and uh, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. So um, I think that is probably gonna get refined in the, in, into the future, I'm sure, where it's gonna be uh, beneficial. But right now we still, we still really rely on our lookouts. And then of course, when, we're in fire season. Uh, I generally bring in what we call an air attack platform. So it's a fixed wing uh, airplane that flies around with, a, with what we call an air attack. They're qualified to, to bring in helicopters and give size ups and, you know, uh, drop retardant and stuff like that. So when we have uh, 
a high density of lightning from a storm that rolls through, we usually try to get up an air attack into the air and they'll do a forest recon for us. So that helps with detection too. And then they're able to kind of give us instant kind of size up on what's going on with the fire and they can order some air resources if it, if it looks like it's going to be problematic. So those are really mm -hmm. the, the two main ways that, that we deal with that right now. Okay. Um, another fellow um, who I think it's one of our friends up in northern New Mexico, Mike Morris 36, asked, how can juniper and pinion fires get so bad being as they're not as thick as ponderosa? Yeah, um, they actually the PJ can be very thick in places. It can actually grow really tight together. And uh, PJ is very, um, it's got a kind of an explosive component to it. It's really oily. And so uh, it has a, you know, under the right conditions and wind, it can get into the PJ canopy very quickly. And that's really how those PJ fires get going. They, they transition very quickly into the crowns of the PJ and then they, they run through it with a steady wind behind, behind it. And typically when the wind comes off of the PJ and the sun goes down, we usually have pretty good success rates with, with picking those up. There are some rare cases where it'll burn day after day after day, similar to what the doghead fire did on the Cibola. That's one place where the PJ just kind of kept picking up every day and burning and burning and burning. But of course, those were under some pretty extreme conditions. You know, it was the height of fire season and uh, we we're having some, you know, haze of six days, which means that this, the air was very unstable and stuff like that. So um, some of the PJ, it just kind of depends on where you're at. It can be pretty well spaced out and a lot of dirt in between it. And typically those areas, we don't see a lot of uh, large PJ fires, but where they are kind of condensed and there's a little bit of that short grass underneath, uh, they can they can get pretty big and they can, they can uh, run for a little ways, so. Um, Michael, Jensen, Michael Jensen asked, um, if, if in the area of the Medio fire, if there was a big fuel load and if it was an area where there was this, like um, disease or infestation, like bark beetle kill trees or things like that up there. Yeah, that, that's a good question. So, so yeah, where the Medio fire is currently burning, there's not a lot of fire history in there. So typically if you don't have a lot of fire history in that area, it, it kind of gives you a good hint that, well, the fields have been building up in there for quite some time, right? So if you don't have any kind of recent burn scars in the in the actual fire footprint, then you can expect a, a pretty heavy fill loading because it goes back to that, you know, kind of old school thought to put every fire out a hundred years ago. And, you know, and, you know, we allowed the, the fields to kind of build up in, in some of those areas. So, and we kind of knocked the system out of whack. Um, so yeah, any, any area that hasn't seen, uh, what we call fire history, it's going to have, you know, heavier fuel loading. And that is the case for the Medio. And that is the case for the, uh, you know, the area adjacent to it across the 102 road in the Pacheco Canyon. That's also got a very heavy fuel loading. So, so yeah. And then the second part was what? Um, if there was like bark beetle killed. Yeah. So actually, you know, some of the, the forest uh, folks have noticed that there is some more uh, beetle kill in the spruce fir. Uh, that's mostly occurring uh, 
up above the highway uh, going up to the ski hill. There has been some bark beetle infestation and that stuff kind of above Hyde State Park there in that area. But currently where the Medio fire is burning now, there's not a lot of beetle kill in that stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, yes. Terrence. We appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. This is a big week for public health order uh, regarding COVID-19 here in New Mexico. First off, on Wednesday, there was a Supreme Court hearing uh, about whether or not the governor has the authority, basically, to do what she did, particularly to restaurants, but businesses in general, in terms of closing down uh, other than curbside or limiting indoor dining, those sorts of things. And the Restaurant Association, amongst others, had filed a suit uh, claiming that that was uh, uh, not, she was overextending her authority, the governor, that is, Michelle Lujan Grisham. And the Supreme Court met on Wednesday to hear that and determined that, in fact, that was not the case, that the public health order uh, does allow the governor to make those sorts of restrictions in a time of a pandemic like COVID-19. We were thrilled once again to work with uh, the state Supreme Court to help stream that hearing. So if you missed it and are interested in hearing the arguments on both sides, as well as the court's decision, you can go to our Facebook page or our YouTube page. Just search for New Mexico in focus, and you'll find archive recordings in both uh, places. We also found out on Wednesday well, a little bit of a preview of some changes to the public health order that the governor is going to make starting this weekend, and uh, part of that does reopen some indoor dining in restaurants as our um, cases continue to drop and uh, things continue to look better. As the governor describes it, we are open to a little more risk because we've been doing so well dealing with COVID-19, and so restaurants will be able to open for indoor dining at 25% capacity. Uh, churches and houses of worship can now um, go to 40% capacity. Mass gatherings had been limited to no more than five people, now no more than 10 people. Some of the highlights of those changes, which again go into effect this weekend, want to let you know that we are working on um, uh, segments, Facebook Lives for next week, uh, looking at how the first weekend went. So be on the lookout for that. But uh, we want to head back over to the line now to get their thoughts on these changes and the governor's continued approach to a slow and steady reopening despite growing criticism that she is not moving fast enough. Here's Gene. Saturday is a big day for restaurants, coffee shops, breweries, wineries, because the new public health order will allow indoor dining at 25% of fire code capacity. Churches and house of worship get a bump from 25 to 40% too. The governor made the announcement Wednesday after a string of days in which New Mexico saw its case counts, its deaths and hospitalizations decrease. She warned, however, that, quote, our progress is only as good as our willingness to stay the course, end quote. And Dan, clearly a nod there to the fact that we tried this once and didn't go well. Will it stick this time? How do you think we'll do? Yeah, I, I think it's tough to predict. I mean, I think clearly we've been trending in a positive direction and there's there's pressure on the governor to kind of ease up on some of the restrictions. Um, but I don't think there's a magic formula here. You know, as you mentioned, the last time we kind of loosened some restrictions, then case numbers increased again. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think, you know, with the imp- unemployment rate having increased last month, that probably also ratcheted up some pressure. So I, I think they're trying to kind of uh, slowly turn the knob, as Secretary Grace would say. But I, I think it's unclear, you know, whether whether that can be done responsibly and kind of slowly enough to help some of these restaurants and businesses out economically, but still kind of keep the, the spread at a low rate. Mm. Laura, interestingly, when you think about it, there was an outbreak in Lee County as we track the numbers. And Lee County, as you know, had thumbed its nose at masks in, you know, indoor dining bans and everything else. How, do we, how does the governor balance opening things versus how everyone sees it should be done if they are governor, as a matter of fact? How, how, do, how does the governor approach this kind of thing? Um, very delicately, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, that, that southeastern part of the state um, is always uh, sort of on the bubble about being you know, treated as, as being part of sort of Santa Fe and the Santa Fe machine, right. if you will, like they always, and having represented a, a municipality in that part of the state, I understand how, um, you know, independent they are and how in many ways they feel compelled. I mean, they, they feel in many ways culturally uh, a relevance to Texas. I mean, they go to Texas for their, um, you know, medical issues. A lot of times they go to Midland, Odessa, or um, you know Lubbock or somewhere else to get medical care, and so for them um, those you know lines, those political lines of Texas versus New Mexico are blurred a lot more than they are for the rest of us, mm-hmm. um, and that's just a fact of life down there. So I think for many of them, they saw the governor's approach as being very different from what they were seeing as reasonable, and they were not seeing as many cases, and so they, they in, in some situations weren't taking it as. Um, as seriously as I think people in, in um, Albuquerque and Santa Fe were taking it with the mask wearing and all of that. But now we see the result of that potentially is this surge. So um, I think it's important that the governor and, and her people be um, delicate and not sort of be, I told you so about their approach with that region, because that will just further um, inflame a bad situation. But I think they're doing what they need to do, which is to encourage contact tracing to encourage um, people to be well-informed about what they need to do to protect themselves, um, to really be vigilant about that, um, and and really to try to reach out to them with more information um, to try to overcome where they're headed right now, which is really troubling given their sparse population. So for example, there was a, a, a just in Rio Doso, there's a McDonald's with 13 mm. um, cases. That's huge for one uh, one employer, let alone, you know, a place like McDonald's that potentially serves a lot of people um, who are traveling through the area, that could really be a serious um, uh, a thing for um, an infection like this to spread. Mm-hmm. Laura Sanchez, I'm going to stay with you for one more and get the other guys in on this too. But since you're the attorney on our panel, I'm curious, this your sense of where the Supreme Court came down on Wednesday, it seems pretty definitive to me. Nothing's really ever settled, but how did you hear the final, final ruling on this? It, it, am I missing something here? It seemed pretty definitive as I, as I was listening. Well, so procedurally, just to kind of go back a little bit, Please. this was filed at a time when, you know, we had been opened at 50% capacity indoor for dining. Um, and then it got shut down based on a resurgence of cases. That was in um, July. And then this, this case was filed soon after that. And the basis of the challenge really was that um, they were arguing that there wasn't enough data to support uh, an approach on health, um, on a health basis, uh, a public welfare basis, um, to shut down businesses like this. That it was really pr- um, causing an economic impact, and that was the harm that they were causing. So it's really an argument that government is overstepping their bounds. 
um, and causing an economic um, or, a, you know, potentially like a, a property value to go down that they have a right to. So that was the sort of the legal argument. Mm -hmm. um, the Supreme Court initially basically uh, agreed with um, the temporary restraining order. And then this hearing that happened this week was to determine a permanent injunction, which would have been a permanent sort of banning of the governor's ability to uh, to close down um, in indoor dining. To a certain extent, it's um, the impact of the ruling is lessened because the health orders have now been changed so that this weekend, the, everything will be able to open back up, everything being restaurants to 25% capacity indoor. So the mm -hmm. practical effect of this um, is somewhat, uh, is not as important necessarily as it had been before when it was shut down completely. But I think um, legally speaking, it's still imp an important outcome because it validates the governor's ability to make these kinds of broad sweeping um, executive orders uh, for the public welfare. And so in that sense, I think you're going to see other potential industries, if they have a problem with the way the governor's approaching this, they're going to be hard pressed to, to be able to win at the Supreme Court level. And mm -hmm. then, of course, we saw that, that Steve Pierce and other, other Republicans saying, well, here's an example of why people should get out and vote and try to you know vote the bums out, meaning the, the Supreme Court. But right. interestingly enough, Judith Nakamura is a Republican, a Republican appointed um, you know, uh, chief justice or justice. Mm -hmm. So it isn't a political issue when it comes to um, members of the judiciary and particularly the Supreme Court, they're looking at jurisprudence, they're looking at precedent, they're looking at the law. So it doesn't come down to, you know, what's the letter after your name? Gotcha. What's the letter of the law? Lana, has the outspoken Republican opposition to this been uh, the health order, I should say the public health order, has it been a political winner or a political loser? Meaning, are they losing on this short term or winning or long term? Is this winnable? What's your sense of where the GOP is coming from on this? No, I think it depends you know, what happens with the numbers and people are fickle on this. Mm -hmm. And I think it depends where you live. I think a lot of it depends where you live. If you're in a rural area and you're not seeing very many cases, you don't understand why there's a one state policy. And so, you know, I think that that's, you know, so it's, I think it's complicated. I think there's a lot of uh, people in sort of these southern districts in these rural areas in particular who probably aren't very happy with how things have gone uh, with the COVID orders. And, you know, they're not part of Albuquerque and Santa Fe, as Laura talked about. And I think that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, maybe the one straight strategy has been a, a difficult strategy for them in particular. Mm -hmm. Dan, same question. Is this, I mean, you can make anything political in this world. You can make anything you want to political. But there's, the, you know, as Lana and Laura just sort of spelled out, there's a built in opposition that's there. And they're going to vote for this governor or somebody else for governor at some point. It, could this be a problem for her down the road? I, I think some of the, you know, it could kind of um, highlight some of those already tensions between urban and rural parts of the state. Um, mm -hmm you know, that Laura talked about, I think those are already there. And, and I think this might be exacerbating some of that. Um, I do think obviously this playing out in an election season, you know, that's given it even more of a kind of political cue. Um, it would probably be political anyhow, but even more so. I do mm -hmm. think they'll kind of, uh, you know, philosophically too, it's just highlighting differences. Uh, you know, this is the latest court case, governor's faced a string of lawsuits and she's prevailed in all of them. So I do think looking forward to maybe expect some discussion at the legislature next year about these emergency powers laws and whether they need to be changed or reined in. And I think mm -hmm. that's where kind of we're going to see this uh, go next. Yeah. Laura Sanchez, you just got a little bit of time on this one, but we're headed into the holidays in a couple of months, certainly. 
Uh, schools might be more likely to return. It's going to be winter. There's a lot of things to think about here and we'll be indoors. You know, do you think we're, we're just bound for more trouble and the governor's sort of thinking about it that way, saying, look, you know, we've got holidays coming up. People are going to be traveling, getting together. Even January could be a big mess when you really think about it. Is that where the governor's head's at? Well, if you were the governor right now, is that what you would be thinking well, about? Certainly, yeah, I mean, I think anybody um, in terms of a prudent approach to dealing with this um, with this problem, you have to be thinking ahead yeah. um, at all times. And I think that's a big part of what the thinking is. Of course, you know, I, I, I think the governor also has a very difficult job in that she needs to listen to her advisors, right? She needs to listen to the, the uh, doctors that are involved in this, but she also needs to be concerned about the reality of the economy, um, mm -hmm. balancing that approach. And, and the fact that people, I think, you know, we're still seeing hundred degree days. We're still seeing some really, really hot um, temperatures here in Albuquerque and, and certainly in the rest of the state. So because of that, it's unrealistic to expect people to be able to go out to eat and sit out in the hot sun or even under a tent and have it be comfortable in any way. So um, it, it will be a gradual approach to try to figure out how to get the economy going. And then I think that the holidays, we're going to see a very different holiday season, I think mm -hmm. this year, than we've mm -hmm. seen in the past, and also a very different legislative session. So wow. once we get past the election, a lot of those issues about how the legislature is going to function or not are gonna to come to light. And it will be very interesting to see sort of what kind of um, all hands on deck approach um, our leaders take. Interesting. That's a great last note. Really want to appreciate, say I appreciate that. And thanks to everyone for keeping track of everything through a whirlwind news week. And Dan, thank you for your reporting, no doubt. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Now, throughout the pandemic, we've been keeping an eye on homelessness. Many of you know about the moratorium on evictions, but that's not the whole story. Once more, here's NMIS Megan Kemrick with line panelist and housing advocate Serge Martinez and Chuck Sheldon, a longtime landlord and apartment owner. Facebook Live has been some place that we've spent a lot of time talking in, in recent months, really during the COVID-19 epidemic, about evictions. Um, New Mexico is an interesting state for evictions. Our eviction process is very quick. And so there have been a lot of folks looking at the system uh, and how it works and whether or not it needs um, revisions and reform, because obviously when someone is evicted, that's not great news for anybody, certainly not for the tenant to the resident, but also for the landlord who's missing out on income. And uh, in the midst of COVID-19, there was a federal moratorium on evictions that was issued, which is now expired, but the state has its own uh, moratorium in place. Don't know when that's going to come off, but uh, as we've talked about, the evictions are still being issued. It, they're just not physically being carried out. And so that other shoe could drop at any time and countless number of families could be uh, left without housing, and uh, that is a bad situation all the way around. So we wanted to pick up that conversation on the show this week and talk to a landlord and a housing manager, works for a housing management company, as well as Serge Martinez. You probably recognize him from the line. He is a regular there, but also does a lot of work on evictions. And so we're going to play for you first our full interview about exactly how things have changed during COVID-19 and what, um, what everybody's sort of expecting and predicting once moratoriums are lifted. 
And then also going to follow that up with uh, a little bit of extra content with them about outside of COVID-19, what our guests think are some solutions to the eviction problem and housing security issues in New Mexico. We're going to continue to follow this story, so keep an ear there. If you've got stories to share, we'd love to hear from you. Just head to our website, NewMexicoInFocus.org, or Facebook, or YouTube, or Twitter, Instagram even, and drop us a line or a personal message there. We would love to hear about that. We're going to look into mortgages as well, um, because that's another area, obviously, if your employment has been affected, a lot harder to make that mortgage payment, and foreclosures could also climb. And it's already, housing is already a, a crunch in New Mexico, especially here in Albuquerque, something that we deal with in the best of times, and these are far from that. So here now, all about evictions. I'd like to welcome our guests. Professor Serge Martinez teaches primarily in the UNM School of Law's Economic Justice Clinic, also known as the Business and Tax Clinic, which focuses on support for grassroots economic development initiatives, enforcing the rights of low-wage workers and improving housing stability and conditions for low-income tenants. Chuck Sheldon is the CEO and president of the Sheldon Company, TNC Management Company, and Enchanted Properties Construction Company. He's former president of the Apartment Association of New Mexico and owns or manages a total of about 1,700 units. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. It, it should be safe to say that it's in the best interest of both tenants and landlords to have a good relationship build, where buildings are safe and well-maintained, rent is reasonable, and renters are responsible tenants and pay rent on time. Some renters, for a variety of reasons, are not able to pay rent when it's due. And right now, the COVID-19 pandemic is causing more problems with unemployment and other woes. And there are concerns we're going to see a huge wave of evictions as federal help for renters has declined or for uh, rather for uh, taxpayers. Right now, there's still a moratorium surge on evictions here in New Mexico, but that is set to expire soon and it doesn't apply to all renters. What do we know about when these moratoria will end? Yeah, we, you know, the federal moratorium uh, ended about a month ago and required a 30 day notice, which I think today actually is the 30th day. Mm -hmm. So, so um, the federal protections could, you know, are effectively over in terms of moratoria. The state, uh, the, the state Supreme Court issued a stay on physically performing evictions in certain cases. Um, and that has been in place since March and it's in place until further notice. We don't have any indication from the court when that will be lifted or how long it'll be in place. So does the state um, moratorium from the, uh, that the Supreme Court oversees, does that apply to everyone? It applies to renters, renters who are being facing eviction specifically for non-payment of rent who can show the court that they are experiencing uh, financial hardship that makes it unable for them to pay the rent. Okay. So not everybody. Okay, because people are evicted for a variety of reasons. Um, so how many more evictions do you expect to see in the coming months? I mean, that is, that's the, you know, the million dollar question. We, I expected to see a lot more uh, over the, the, the previous months. And um, we were able to, you know, federal stimulus and other measures were able to sort of stem that. Now that the stimulus 
has, is gone and the, the employment, unemployment insurance bump has gone away, I anticipate seeing you know, more folks unable to pay the rent and the uh, resultant uh, increase in evictions. What the actual number is, is anybody's guess, right? The numbers of folks who are rent have instability in, in their ability to pay rent is skyrocketing. But, you know, it's not in anybody's interest to have huge amounts of evictions uh, and wave after wave. So what we'll actually see is it's really completely unknown at this point. You say there in here in New Mexico, the courts have a super fast eviction process. Why is that? Uh, New Mexico is, you have basically, we have a statute that says eviction cases have to be heard by the court within seven to 10 days. And there's room for pushing that out a little bit, but not a lot of room there. And so, you know, in a situation where if a tenant can't pay their rent and the landlord gives them a three day notice, after those three days are up, the, ten, the landlord can start a lawsuit. And so inside of a couple of weeks, you can find yourself facing an eviction. And the process moves very quickly, which unfortunately leads to, you know, it doesn't give time for folks to maybe find other resources or find ways to, to get the rent if, if there's a, you know, a one-off reason for them not being able to pay it that month or whatever. And so the, pro the, the, the speed with which the process moves really prevents a lot of taking stock and, you know, doesn't give you a lot of breathing room. So even there's, there, there's still a moratorium, people can still get a judgment of eviction. Why is it important to avoid that even if you can't be turned out physically from your apartment right now? Right, so getting a judgment of eviction is uh, unequivocally a bad thing. It, you know, it's another landlord, the next place you try to go, right? If you wanna to move to a new place, the landlord is not gonna look favorably on that. It can actually disqualify you for certain subsidies and other forms of, um, you know, housing assistance. And it is, you know, it's, it's not gonna redound well to your, you know, to your, redound to your benefit, obviously. It's just a bad thing to have uh, on one's record. And so having that, you know, judgment, even if you're not physically displaced is also, you know, very undesirable as a tenant. Chucky, said the Lord renter relationship works best when everybody interacts as citizens. How can a landlord or a property manager or owner best work with tenants? Well, I think that, you know, what Serge was saying, you know, it, it moves quickly. Um, the courts have been backed up for a long time. So, you know, we're, we're short uh, judges on the bench. So, you know, I think we have a little bit more leeway and times and then the judges, uh, typically by statute is three to seven days and they've been giving 10 to 15 days for people. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been up to the jurisdiction of the, of the judges, but it behooves us to work with the tenants and have a communication with the tenant as to, you know, they're struggling, you know, how can we help them? And, uh, you know, if you call me after, your, you know, your rent's due and you haven't done anything to mitigate that, you know, then it's very difficult, right? Because, my, you know, the banks, uh, when I look at the banks, you know, they require their payment on the 5th and there is no leeway, right? And if you're five days to 10 days late, then there's a 10% penalty. Um, 
So, you know, we're, we're up against uh, between a rock and a hard space ourselves. And so the more leeway, the more people will think about this. And, and I always talk about it like your children, right? And, and not to be uh, thinking down about tenants, but when your children don't talk to you, you know they're in a room by themselves or they're somewhere else. You know they're up to something that you don't want them to be up to. And, and so what you do is you go in and check on them to see, okay, what are you guys doing, right? Oh, you're writing on the walls. You know you're not supposed to do that. Well, it's the same thing as when we're working with tenants, when they don't talk to you and we're reaching out to them, you give them that three-day notice it is a, a, a shocking point, if you will, because they say, I, I need your attention. Come and talk to me. You're not talking to me. You know, you're, we give people five days leeway. Rent's due on the first. We give them till the fifth to pay. It's just like everyone in life. No, you know, not everybody can make their payments and, and be an 800 FICA score and get their payments done on the first. So we give people leeway. So, so they should, give, if they know they're going to have a problem, just start talking to, they should start talking to their landlord right away. Absolutely. So that five days, you get three days. Now that's eight days late before you even start any kind of legal process, right? And it's usually around the 10th of the month. So then, you know, that's 10 days before you start a process. We try to talk to all our tenants. And if you have a difficulty, get them to, you know, um, the goodwill. For example, we'll, we'll help people with one month's rent if you've been given a three-day notice. You, you know, Catholic Charities helps. Yeah, so, talk about some of the avenues of assistance for renters when they're having problems. Do you work with your property managers and train them to work with renters to get that kind of help? Absolutely. Everybody has a, a, a list of people. Um, we're, we're considered a, a second chance. We have second chance units where we help people that have actually been in prison, have, have failed uh, in society and have difficulty in society. And, and we've tried to help those people and, and find them housing and, and being and nurturing. So we work with a lot of agencies and we talk to the agencies to be able to help folks. Uh, we also have market properties where, you know, they don't take the, uh, you know, people that have had some difficulties. Um, and so we have a blend. So we are very versed in helping tenants get help. What's amazing to me is some of the folks won't reach out to get the help. Uh, okay. you, you know, you, you can take things to them and say, call these. For example, I believe I, I saw the paper the other day and, and Serge was quoted in there and trying to help, you know, people get this $300,000 that the city has. Mm -hmm. Well, I called 311 right away and, and I said, okay, what's the process? Well, the process, like everything, and is lengthy. And, you know, you have to apply and you have to show you have, you know, paid your taxes and you have to show that you can't eat anymore. So, you know, most people won't go through that process to, to apply. So is this, uh, I was going to bring up this $300,000, the city's coronavirus relief money they've made available for eviction prevention. Is this just a temporary solution? Is there a downside to this kind of aid? There's no downside to providing you know, assistance. I think it's, it's not based on the numbers that you know, we 
anticipate it's not going to be not going to be able to prevent or help you know everybody who's going to be in need. Um, and you know, as Chuck was alluding, these programs aren't always nimble and and able to work. So you know, I'm I advocate for slowing things down on the eviction side, but also for making more funds available and assistance available and speeding it up, making it right because nobody can wait a long time, especially, you know, landlords have their operating expenses and, and I get that, right? So saying, let's all just wait for ages while government agencies and bureaucracies slowly move into action. That's not a real viable solution given the speed with which these things happen. But, you know, it's a recognition of the need for rental assistance to benefit renters, landlords, and everybody. And, an understanding of this is a real issue. And it was an issue before March. It will continue to be an issue, affordable housing and rental instability. Well, I we unfortunately have to wrap up, but it seems clear that this pandemic has brought forward long simmering issues that we have to solve around housing and affordability. So we hope both of you will come back as we, I'm sure there will be more to talk about. Thanks to Serge Martinez with UNM School of Law's Economic Justice Clinic and Chuck Sheldon, CEO and president of the Sheldon Company, TNC Management Company and Enchanted Properties Construction Company for sticking around just a little bit longer to talk on the web about housing and evictions. What would you both like to see as a long time solution to prevent evictions of low income families when they're having financial trouble? Um. I have a I have a lengthy wish list, but I won't read, won't give you all. <laughs> okay. But, you know, I, as I as I was saying before, I think well, first of all, affordable housing and stability is is a has been a problem. You know, it's a problem all over the country it's because wages don't reach to allow people to to um, to pay for apartments. If they're you know minimum wage, working forty hours a week doesn't allow you can't you can't afford a two bedroom apartment, right? Maybe one bedroom. I can't remember the exact stats. And and you know the folks who and the the amount of affordable housing is just not there. The amount of you know public public housing and other publicly supported housing is there's there's a chronic need for it. And I know Chuck has been involved in creating some of that in situations where you know, others have said, well, there's not enough money in it for us. And Chuck has has gone ahead to try to do that kind of stuff, but. It's there's still you know a huge need for that, but give in the situation where situation where we are, right? I think a record of someone is they're in a place they've had some disruption to their income and they can't pay the rent. We really need to recognize the value to all of us of having people stably housed, and what that looks like from a policy standpoint is, as I said, making more resources available to help people stay where they are, whether that's rapid access to rental assistance, whether that's some sort of subsidy, um, and also you know, re uh, reforming of the, the legal structure that allows folks to have a little bit more time. I think it goes just too quickly in many cases to allow folks to try to work with their landlord or try to jointly find a you know, source of source of income. But it is important to recognize that it's not just tenants who suffer when they can't pay the rent. The landlords, right? It's obviously not 
it's a very bad thing if they have tenants who aren't able to pay the rent because the landlord can't make their expenses. They can't, you know, they can't meet minimum expenses, mortgage expenses. They can't make improvements and repairs, right? And so treating this as not some sort of market-based private solution to housing, but rather a public good that we support and want to allocate resources to, I mean, that is a big ask, but I think in this moment, we're seeing the connection between housing stability and public health, housing stability and mental health, housing mm-hmm. stability and education. All these things are so interconnected. Um, and so, so I would like to see a real long, hard look and a recognition of housing as a human right, but specifically more money and more time. What about you, Chuck? You know, and the amount of approaches in a couple of ways. One, I think that you know, we've always been short of housing stock. And when we go in and we look at uh, new capitalization and we have cities and we have the federal government put in for building buildings with the requirements of saying, we want the buildings green and we want them outstanding. The cost is prohibitive. And, and I, don't, I don't take that away from anybody you're building 40 units downtown with HopeWorks. It's going to be $40,000, million. You can't afford to do that. As a private company, you can't afford to do that. We were fortunate and, and to be able to get into when President Obama put in for the Neighborhood Stabilization Act. And when I did that, you know, there were 75 people and, and I was the only bidder because they were overwhelmed by the, the five inch thick contract that they fill out. Uh, having worked for the government and contracting, I said, okay, let's take this apart. We can do it. My point though, is that what I learned from that was that we can rehab and reposition properties instead of tearing them down, instead of the city boards them up, we need to move quickly to before the vagrants have totally torn the property apart to be able to take that and reposition it and be able to put people in and put in, in the low income cost. Okay. So if you keep your costs down, then we can make help the rent stay down so people can afford it. And, and that's critical. You can't spend $120,000 on an apartment and say, I'm going to rent it to you for $500. Mm-hmm. That doesn't even pay the interest. So, so the thing is, when you look at that, you, we need to be able to find stock. We need to reposition properties. We need to have a fund that allows you to borrow from that fund at low interest cost to be able to build stock, to be able to reposition properties to help. All right. I'm, and, and this is a push-pull between... Surgeon myself is that, you know, we want to give people more time in, in trying to find themselves. The problem is, and I'll give you an example. Right now, we have several clients that are, that are renting and owe us four or $5,000 in rent. We will never see that. It's if I came to you and I took 10, 15,000 out of your income, you wouldn't be comfortable with that. And so we have three of those tenants in one property. That's uh, that's $15,000 in rent. Mm. That's a huge sum. When you're trying to look at and making things work, 
right? So some of these, and, and, and I look at that and some of the folks don't want to work with you. They don't, you know, so they're just playing and gaming the system. That's what hurts us all. You know, if we talking to tenants and they're falling down and they have a mother with two kids and they're struggling to make the rent, we, we got to figure out a way to help them, right? Got to figure out a way to be able to say, okay, how do we get them some support so they stay in? All right. Because if we put them on the street, we, we now we have a chronically person on the street. Now we're trying to get them rehoused and all these things. The other, other component that's really immensely important is the mental health. We have to get mental health support. I got a call last night at 1.30 in the morning because somebody pulled a fire alarm on one of our buildings. I had to have people go down and because the firebox was, was locked and they broke into it, they had to stand fire watch all night. So I was paying people time and a half to, to be there at the property, make sure it was secure. And this was just out of meanness. Not because it was a need or something happened, but out of meanness. And, and so those are costs that are difficult to bore. You know, when you, and because you're looking at that, how we work together there. So the mental health component, uh, another component of being able to help people get low money, low priced money to rehab properties, to create more housing is imperative. You know, people leave foreclosed things, get it out there so we, people can bid on it. So somebody doesn't say, well, you're the favorite son. So you get money from the city. No, you bid on it, you get the property and you have to rent it for a low income, you know, so people can afford it. And, and that can be done. I know it can be done. I've done it. So, you know, we, we can be able to do that and transition to have more housing. And I think that's where, that's where we can work together with different philosophies. One from an ownership philosophy, one from an assistance philosophy to say, how do we bridge these to create housing? There's definitely a lot of models we can look at in other places in terms of financing, in terms of programs. So um, I really appreciate you both coming and giving your different expertise about this. And we'd certainly like to keep talking about this. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Sorry, I, I know we're trying to wrap up here, but if I yeah. could just make one, just uh -huh. one quick point. I, to underline what Chuck was saying, right? When he's talking about, you know, a landlord to, a landlord has no incentive to be patient or forbearance if they don't have an expectation that they'll be able to recover, you know, the, the, the foregone and mm -hmm. foreborn costs. And this is what I'm saying, right? If we're going to say, let's slow things down, we also need to to get everybody to buy in, make there's a reasonable expectation that folks will get paid, right? The costs that they that they have or the money that they're that they're they're relying on. This is why it's not just enough to say, you know, this piece of legislation will will change the procedure. If we don't allocate resources to creating affordable housing, but also rental assistance to folks who are in these these situations that landlords and tenants know are reliable and they can actually do, then there's not going to be enough, you know, buy-in to any sort of system. It's really, you have to have both prongs of this to be able to slow down the, you know, the anticipated wave of, of evictions and displacement and anything going forward while we try to also, you know, give ourselves time to, for larger um, policy and other sort of solutions. So 
that's a good pragmatic point. You know, I'd, I'd like to, and I, and I think that it's creating these bridges. And, and, and I think that, you know, we, we've come from different sides of the problem, Jan, but it's creating bridges that we can work together to find solutions. There are solutions. And, and, and it's each of us giving to figure out how best to apply these, right? And, and I have clients that say, well, they don't want to give an inch. And, and I, understand, I understand their position. Uh, but I also realize that when you become unflexible, that people then bring in legislation to help you become flexible. <laughs> Whether so, you want to be or not. <laughs> no, that, that's correct. So I, I believe in self-monitoring and, and, and being, you know, uh, ahead of the game, thinking about, okay, how do we apply these things? How do we make these things fit together? How do we help other human beings in order to do this uh, in a communal environment? Right. Without having somebody to say, you know what, we're going to pass this legislation and you have no choice. Good point. Good to be proactive. Thank you both again for talking about this really complicated issue. Absolutely. Thank All you, right. sir, for inviting me. Thank you. All right. We'll leave you this week with uh, some final thoughts from Gene Grant, particularly about the public health order changes and loosenings that will happen this weekend. Of course, we're just on the front end of what will be another holiday weekend and a chance for a lot of uh, gatherings and things that could send us in a bad direction again, the Labor Day weekend. Um, but time will tell how we fare with all of that. Before we, before we let Gene close us out, though, want to make you aware, too, of another Facebook Live we're working on for next week to be on the lookout for. And it's really the other COVID-19 story that's top of mind for people and that's school reentry. We've done a fair amount on uh, public schools, but we wanted to look at how UNM is faring so far and how they're dealing with new COVID-19 protocol and restrictions now that students are back, uh, dorms are uh, occupied, all of those things that just really make this super challenging, as well as contingency plans that they have in place if there is an outbreak uh, at the university. So that's coming up next week. We'll have more information on our Facebook page. So go there and look out for information. And if you haven't already, join our Focus on New Mexico Facebook group. We really try to engage in conversations that inform our coverage on the show. We always want to thank you for your involvement and you taking the time to listen. And uh, we will talk to you next week on New Mexico in Focus. Have a great one. So as you just heard from our wonderful panel, we have some movement on businesses opening, restaurants particularly. It's a long overdue fist pump for some and a worried groan for others. Now to me, it's an opportunity to go into fall in the flu season, particularly in good shape if we take the lessons learned from earlier this year. We now know how to wear a mask, some of us anyway, as well as social distancing, and of course, washing our hands. Now, if we, if we manage this partial opening and we come out of Labor Day weekend without a backslide, like we had after Memorial Day, we're gonna stay ahead of the game. It's all in our hands and we can do this. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.